Section 11 of The Diary of a Country Parson by James Woodford. Read by John Greenman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 1769. January 1st. My ring, which I had lost, was unaccountably found in little Sam Clark's breeches, he knowing nothing of it. I gave him one shilling. January 2nd. We had the fine mummers this evening at Parsonage. He had been visiting a lot, the usual round of parties, and on January 11th enters, I am heartily weary of visiting so much as I have, but if I did not it would be taken amiss in some. On January 13th his mother's estate, all in land and house property at Ansford, is divided into three lots, and he and Sister Jane and Brother John draw the lots out of a hat. On January 23rd he goes to Bath on horseback with his boy George. They stay at the Bear Inn till January 27th, when they return to Ansford via Radstock. At Bath he sees his great-aunt and his friends Squire Farr, his wife and daughter. He does the usual bath round, the pump-room, a ball at Simpson's rooms, very elegant indeed, makes various visits to old friends of his father in a chair. He sees the clandestine marriage at the playhouse. He visits the Octagon Church in Milsom Street, and does not approve. It is a handsome building, but not like a place of worship, there being fireplaces in it, especially on each side of the altar, which I cannot think at all decent. It is not liked. On February 3rd he gives a large supper-party at the lower house, followed by a dance. The music was a bass-viol and a violin. Those ladies who did not dance played at quadrille. I danced a minuet with Mrs. and Miss Millier, and a few country dances with Miss Aggie Clark and Miss Plummer. The company were well pleased with their entertainment. He gave them an excellent supper, which included veal cutlets, oysters, a very fine large ham, tarts, etc., punch, wine, beer, and cider. February 5th. From henceforth, O Lord, give me grace to walk in thy ways more circumspectly than I have done lately. On February 9th, a meeting at the George Inn of some of the leading carry parishioners, including the diarist, composes the approaching lawsuit between Justice Creed and the church wardens. This proposal had been rejected two days before, being that as the gallery at Carey Church was large enough to contain between three and four score people, and the singers being not above thirty in number, that there should be a partition made in the gallery for the singers, and the other part open to anybody, and also for Mr. Creed to pay his own costs, and the parish the other. February 11th. Jack and I had a few words this evening at Lower House, and indeed I was more to blame than him, being passionate. Keep me, O Lord, from passions of every kind, pro futuro. Jack refuses to breakfast at the Lower House on account of this. On February 19th he enters, Jack's stomach is not come down yet to breakfast at L.H., he breakfasts now at Parsonage. However, he returns to breakfast at L.H. on February 22nd. February 26th. 
The 36th Psalm was sung this afternoon in Cary Church by the singers, done out of pique to old William Burge. Note, My heart showeth me the wickedness of the ungodly, that there is no fear of God before his eyes. He imagineth mischief upon his bed, and hath set himself in no good way. Neither doth he abhor anything that is evil. Psalm 36, Prayer Book Version. End of note. Old Mr. Burge concerns himself too much with the singers. On February 19th, Old Burge had annoyed the singers by sending some persons into the singing part of the gallery contrary to the recent agreement. March 7th, poor Mrs. Pierce, Miss Rook, that was, is no more. She died yesterday. She met, I am afraid, with a bad husband. March 10th. One Farmer Witties of Butley, whom I never saw but once before, called upon me this morning and desired me to lend him thirty pound, but it was not convenient. Very odd, indeed. March 11th. Brother John has advanced one hundred pounds, all in cash, ninety-five guineas and five shillings, by his father to enable him to stock his share of his mother's estate, which he is going to manage himself. March 12th. I read prayers and preached this morning at Ansford Church. I read prayers and preached this afternoon at C. Carey Church. Mem, as I was going to shave myself this morning, as usual on Sundays, my razor broke in my hand as I was setting it on the strop without any violence. May it be always a warning to me not to shave on the Lord's day, or do any other work to profane it pro futuro. I dined, supped, and spent the evening at Parsonage. On April 5th he notes that a serving boy is not enough now Brother John is taking his share of the estate, so George Green becomes their new servant. John pays his wages, and the diarist keeps him. April 8th. I buried a little boy of William Speed's this evening at Ansford, who died of the evil, aged thirteen. May 2nd. Brother John went to Gannard's grave this morning to see a famous boxing match between Parfit Mags and one dark uh, Londoner, and the Londoner, sick, beat Mags. May 14th. I wore my gown and cassock for the first time this year. May 27th. Dr. Clark had a letter this evening from Baron Dimsdale at Hartford, who is lately returned from Russia, from inoculating the Empress and Grand Duke there, and with success. He gave the doctor a fine description of the Empress. Note. See pages 76 to 77 preceding. May 29th. I read prayers this morning at C. Carey, being 29 of May, the restoration of King Charles II from Popish tyranny. Jack brought home with him from Ansford Inn, where there had been great cock-fighting, after ten o'clock this evening, Dr. John Grount, Mr. James Grount, Joseph Wilmot, and James, all of Ditchet, which supped and stayed till three in ye morning, quite low-life sort of people, much beneath Jack. I really wonder Jack keeps such mean company. June 3rd. The transit of Venus over the face of the sun I saw this evening, between seven and 
eight o'clock at Mr. Clark's. It appeared as a black patch upon a fair lady's face. It will not happen again, they say, till the year 1874. During the transit it was remarkably cold indeed. Between June 9th and 16th the diarist is ill with a violent rash on his face, hands, breast, arms, etc., and all the symptoms, as he describes them, of scarlet fever or measles, sore throat, headache, weak eyes, fever. Dr. Clark, however, merely tells him to keep warm indoors and eat as much as he likes, not to live low, but encourage the rash. All this time he sees relations and friends constantly, and after some strong purges he is well again and out on the 16th. June 17th. Jack made a terrible noise at Lower House with all the folks there. I got up out of my bed and came down at twelve at night and found the house in an uproar, Jack abusing of them all in a terrible manner. Very bad work indeed of a Saturday night in a parson's house. It disturbed me all night. N.B. We must part. June 19th he notes that Jack made a riot at the parsonage, being in want of money. June 21st. I played with Mr. James Clark at Battledore and Shuttlecock, and we kept the cock up once upwards of five hundred times. On June 27th he goes to Oxford to be sworn in poser to Winton College next elect. He is duly sworn on June 29th. He goes back via Stonehenge to show my man the great stones there, and arrives at home on the 1st July. On July 4th he sups with Justice Creed, whom he had not seen since the gallery trouble, except by accidental meeting, and was very graciously received by them. July 18th. For two three-pound and twelve shilling pieces, of Miss Rook this morning at Lower House gave her seven new guineas of George the Third, the present King of England. He and his sister and Miss Rook, who is staying at the parsonage, went all the way to Stock in Dorsetshire, eighteen miles away, by post-chaise, to see little Jenny White, because her mother was anxious about her. She was staying with the Fars, and they found the little maid very hearty and well. They went unknown to Sister White, who was greatly rejoiced at our excursion when she knew it. July 29th. I drank tea this afternoon with Dr. Arnold and Dr. Clark at Justice Creed's with him and his father. Dr. Arnold is a mighty sensible, agreeable, and affable man. August 1st. Alexander, the window-surveyor of the Hundred of Catsash, and who lives at Somerton with David Maybe, the collector, viewed the windows at Lower House this afternoon, and he brought in one window more than usual. Note. See pages 57-58 preceding. August 7th. I thank God. My sister White was this morning about nine, brought to bed of a fine little maid, and is brave in her condition. Blessed be God for all his mercies to us. August 10th. N.B. I invited Dr. Clark and Mr. White, and neither came either to dinner or supper. I think to return the compliment to Dr. Clark, as for Mr. White he was detained involuntarily. On August 19th he notes that his father gave back to Jack all his notes of hand, three hundred and nineteen pounds, etc., 
plus 180 pounds, etc., besides, making 500 pounds in all the sum he designed for him. On August 28th he goes to Oxford preparatory to going to Winchester to act as poser at the election of scholars for New College, September 5th through 8th. The diarist gives a very full account of the manner of the election, but for lack of space we are unable to transcribe it here. He reaches Ansford again on September 9th. September 20th. Jack went to Sherburn this morning with Andrew Russ and bought a lottery ticket, number 36,739, for 15 pounds one shilling sixpence. Jenny and myself are to have share in it, as promised but alas, on November 23rd, they are notified that the ticket was drawn a blank. Lotteries were held in England under authority as early as the 16th century. During the whole of the 18th century, they were very commonly sanctioned by Act of Parliament, the prizes being in the form of annuities. The government reaped a handsome revenue, running into several hundreds of thousands of pounds from these state lotteries. They were, however, suppressed in 1826. Lovers of Charles Lamb will remember a delightful reference in an essay to the interest and excitement of a lottery, and the beautiful but vanishing vision of wealth it held out. September 22nd. Great rejoicings at Cary today being the coronation day, bells ringing all day, cudgel playing at crockers, a very large bonfire on the top of the hill, and very grand fireworks in the evening, with firing of many guns. All at Mr. Creed's, Mr. Hindley, and Mr. Potts, and Duck's expense. I was at all. At the cudgel playing I gave four shillings fivepence. The fireworks were sent from London, and were skyrockets, mines, trees, crackers, wheels, and divers Indian fireworks old Mr. Burge and daughters, etc., 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 drank tea and coffee, supped and spent the evening at Justice Creed's. We did not break up till near two in the morning. Everything extremely handsome and polite indeed. September 23rd. Great doings again today at Cary in the park. At one o'clock there was a shift run for by women, there were five that started for it, and one by William Francis' daughter, Nan, of Ansford. Her sister Peg was second, and therefore had ribbons. I never saw the park so full of people in my life. The women were to run the best of three half-mile heats. Nan Francis run a heat in three minutes. October 1st. I read prayers, churched a woman, and read the Act of Parliament against profane swearing as directed by law. October 18th. After breakfast went with Mr. Creed in his chair to Wells, with a great posy from Cary to attend at the county meeting to consider of a proper petition concerning the late violation of the freedom of election to His Majesty in the present crisis of affairs. We went to the Swan, where we dined with upwards of a hundred gentlemen of the first rank in the county. We had a very respectable meeting on this occasion. Mr. Cox, Mr. Smith, members for Bath, Mr. Allen, member for Bridgewater, Mr. Seymour, Mr. Creed, and Mr. Sanson, and Reverend Mr. Wainhouse, spoke on the occasion upon the petitions that were presented to the public.
Mr. Cox's petition, with some alteration, was approved of most, and agreed in the town hall to be presented to His Majesty by proper persons. Britons never will be slaves, was played during the dinner. This reference to the late violation of the freedom of election is, of course, to the famous Wilkes case. Ever since 1763, when John Wilkes, 1727-97, to then a member of Parliament, had proceeded in his journal, the North Britain, from violent attacks on the King's minister, Bute, to an attack on the King himself, he had been an exceedingly popular figure. The Secretary of State, Lord Halifax, had caused him and his papers to be seized, and though his imprisonment was declared illegal and he was released, he found it safer to fly to France. He was then outlawed. In 1768 he came back and was immediately elected as its representative in the new House of Commons by the county of Middlesex. But he was still under sentence of outlawry and was imprisoned. Reference has already been made, in the diary, to the riots of May 10, 1768, on account of this imprisonment. Shortly after this he was released only to be imprisoned again on the count of libel. Meanwhile the House of Commons, packed as it was with the King's friends, corrupt and unrepresentative, expelled him. Twice running Middlesex again returned him. The House tyrannically quashed both elections declared that Wilkes was incapable of sitting in the present Parliament, and that the minority candidate, Colonel Luttrell, should sit as the representative for Middlesex. No wonder the diarist and the good county gentlemen of Somerset discoursed their dinner at Wells to the strident accompaniment of Britons never will be slaves, for they realized that George III was gradually furbishing up that old, overweening royal prerogative which had led to the revolution of 1688, and that the House of Commons in its present form represented not the country, but the king, and for the time the king won. From 1770 to 1782 he and Lord North misruled England and lost America. But thenceforth the royal wings were clipped, and Wilkes in the latter year at last succeeded in carrying through the House of Commons his motion expunging from the records the old resolutions of expulsion. October 29th. I privately baptized Fanny Collins' child this morning at Parsonage, when I came from Cary Church, by name Michael. November 4th. I received of Miss Rook this afternoon the sum of one hundred pounds, for which I gave her my note of hand to pay on her demand with lawful interest for the same, and Sister Jane was a witness to it. November 12th. I read prayers and preached this morning at C. Carey Church. I was disturbed this morning at Carey Church by the singers. I sent my clerk some time back to the Carey singers to desire that they would not sing the responses in the communion service, which they complied with for several Sundays. But this morning, after the first commandment, they had the impudence to sing the response, and therefore I spoke to them out of my desk, to say and not sing the responses, which they did after, and at other places they sang as usual. The singers in the gallery were John Coleman, the baker, Jonathan Crocker, William Pugh, Jr., Thomas Penny, William Ashford, Hooper, the singing-master, James Lucas, Peter, Mr. Francis Mann, 
Mr. Melieu's man James, Farmer Hicks's son, Robert Sweet, and the two young Dunfords. November 13th. We had news this morning of Mr. Wilkes gaining his point against Lord Halifax and four thousand pounds damages given him. Carrie and Ansford bells rung most part of the day on the occasion. Miss Rook, Jenny, Mr. Richard Clark, Jr., Brother Hyes, and Brother John dined, supped, and spent the evening with me. I gave them for dinner a couple of rabbits smothered with onions, a roasted leg of mutton, and some mince pies. The reference to Mr. Wilkes gaining his point against Lord Halifax is to the conclusion of the long-drawn-out action. It had been dragging on with deliberate ministerial postponements for six years, in which Wilkes had sued Lord Halifax for the seizure of his papers in 1763. The verdict was given on November 10, 1769. Doubtless the diarist and his relations and friends dining together on the 13th, the day the news reached Somerset, consumed those rabbits smothered with onions with a very particular relish. November 20th. Brother Hyes and John dined, etc., at Lower House again, and they kept me up till two in the morning, being very quarrelsome, especially my brother John. N.B. It is too much indeed for me. November 21st. My brother spent the evening at Angel at Carrie, and returned very much disguised in liquor, and stayed up late. November 26th. I read prayers and preached this morning at C. Carrie Church, and B. No singing this morning, the singers not being at church, they being highly affronted with me at what I lately had done. December 17th. The singers at Carrie did not please me this afternoon by singing the twelfth psalm, New Version. Note. Help me, Lord, for there is not one godly man left, for the faithful are minished from among the children of men. They talk of vanity every one with his neighbor, they do but flatter with their lips and dissemble in their double heart. The ungodly walk on every side. When they are exalted, the children of men are put to rebuke. Psalm 12, Prayer Book Version. End of note. Reflecting upon some people. Some people have been about my father's house again this evening, about eight o'clock. Jenny and the maid being at the little house, some person or another came to the door of it and rapped against it three times with a stick. What it means I know not. Brother Hyes, Jack, and myself, all armed, took a walk at twelve this evening round the parish to see if we could meet any idle folks, but we did not, and therefore came home about two. We waited at my father's some considerable time till Brother Hyes was very uneasy, being cold in his feet. December 23rd, to a fatted goose at ninepence per pound, paid two shillings ninepence. December 24th, to carry singers this evening being Christmas Eve at Parsonage, after giving them a lecture concerning their late behavior in church, on promise of amendment, gave two shillings. On December 27th, he has some poor Ansford people to dinner, and sends some victuals to other poor persons, and in addition gives a shilling each and a loaf, being Christmas time. He also entertained several of his near relations at dinner. 
I had a noble sirloin of beef roasted and a plum pudding boiled for dinner. End of section 11, 1769.